From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello and welcome back to Out of Office. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today. Meet Mark Dixon, one of Europe's most well-known and successful entrepreneurs. He founded Regis, the serviced office company in 1989. The company is now called IWG. He's also a philanthropist, sailor, wine enthusiast, and a grandpa. But before all of this, he was a young boy in a hurry. I was hungry. I wanted to get on with it. I felt my, even at 16, that my life was somehow drifting away and I'd miss my chance if I didn't do it straight away. (laughs) (laughs) Young Mark had an entrepreneurial streak. One of his first businesses was called Dial a Snack. He founded it when he was in school. So my customers were really happy. The sandwiches were great, but my Mm -hmm. margins were terrible. So I worked for almost nothing for about six months doing that. Mark eventually sold it to the local village sandwich shop. I always wanted to be in business, but I I realized that, you know, I didn't have the, the required exposure to business to be able to do it well. He learned and he picked up his business smarts through stints as a miner, a bartender and farmhand, amongst other things. Mark says working for different people in various parts of the world taught him more than any college could have. He calls it the university of life. We spoke about entrepreneurship. Well, I think, look, you have to have a healthy fear of failure and a healthy adventurous streak. So you've got to keep those two things in balance. He spoke candidly about the challenges associated with leadership. can't share the problems that you may see or the things, how you feel, when you're a leader. You know, you, you, you know you, you, you've got to be a leader. You have to be immune from anything that's going on in your life or around you. You have to internalize that for another time. And he explained why sailing is his therapy. If you're running a business, it's an enormous burden. It's a fantastic thing to be able to do, but you you are carrying the weight of many people on your shoulders and, and your customers and so on. So for me, it's a sense of freedom. I, I feel I can be myself. I've got no interruptions. I just have the ocean, me, the boat, And that's it. There's all that and much more in this conversation with Mark Dixon. Do listen in. Mark, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Now, you founded the serviced office business Regis back in 1989, way before all of us were trying to find ways to work away from the traditional office. 
you were onto something. Why do you believe that this is the way forward? Well, it, look, it was the way forward then. You know, and this was, you have to imagine the day, this was really before mobile phones and smartphones, before the internet. I mean, people were using faxes and telex machines. But I could, I've spent my sort of life in business, if you like, finding, find, looking for gaps of things that should be there that aren't there. And I felt that, you know, basically the, the whole way you would use an office, and this coincided with me getting my first office, um, I'd always had factories before, but every experience I'd ever had with the property industry was a bad one. It wasn't customer-oriented. It was very time-consuming. It, it was not customer-focused in any way. You weren't treated like a customer. You were treated like a, something in a feudal system from ancient Rome or something. <laughs> you know? So it, it, it's... That's what I saw as being the opportunity then, which was that there was a better way, that people wanted a ready-to-use product that they could have for the time they wanted uh, with a very clear price, and it was easy. Just make it easy and just make it everywhere. So that was the idea at the beginning. Yeah, and look, it worked. It did, and it continues to work now. In fact, it's become much more relevant. I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about the future of work. But before that, I want to take a step back and I want to go back to the beginning. You said you've been in business all your life. Um, my research tells me you began business ventures when you were a teenager. And one of your first business ventures was selling sandwiches from the back of a bicycle. Your business was called Dial a Snack. I was a bit sort of before my time because, um, you know, this was an early... You know, now it's called Deliveroo, but, yes. <laughs> but, but uh, yes. you know, then it was called Dialer Snack. And, uh, you know, again, this was just, uh, you know, I was 16 years old and I felt that, you know, there was a gap. People uh, wanted to have sandwiches delivered to their offices uh, and factories and so on. So I, I, I got a, basically a kitchen. I rented it from a friend. And started to make sandwiches, and I got out, went out, and got customers. I had a bicycle with a big metal basket. It was an old butcher's bicycle in the UK. <laughs> I went around and made and delivered these sandwiches, and everyone phoned up and ordered them. You know, I thought I had a good business, but what they hadn't taught me, of course, at the school I went to, was anything about margin and business. So my customers were really happy. The sandwiches were great, but my mm -hmm. margins were terrible. So I worked for almost nothing for about six months doing that. And then did you shut the business? I sold the business, actually, for a small amount, but to a, to a sandwich store down the road because I had this good customer list and they just continued it from their, from their sandwich shop. Yeah, I realized at that point that I needed to get a lot more experience, so I decided to travel the world um, and, and do, get lots of experience in different businesses I always wanted to be in business, but I, I realized that, you know, I didn't have the, the required exposure to business to be able to do it well. So when you travel the world, I believe you ended up having a stint as a barman, a miner, a farmhand, selling encyclopedias. And these are just some of the things you tried your hand at. Is that right? I worked, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I worked with some amazing people in some amazing places. Look, I didn't go to college and 
I left school and I left home on the first day that I could. You know, when I ended school at 16, I left home at the same time and I, I've sort of had an adventurous streak and I wanted to go and do things. So, you know, this was, I, I had a plan. I wasn't just traveling. I was traveling, uh, work somewhere, gain experience, work with good people. Didn't matter what it was, see how things worked. And that all added to my knowledge of the world, of how businesses run, of how people are. It was, um, you know, the university of life much more than the, mm. you know, than a formal university. This adventurous streak, do you think it's essential for entrepreneurs to have this adventurous streak? Well, I think, look, you have to have a healthy fear of failure and a healthy adventurous streak. So you've got to keep those two things in balance. But absolutely, you have to have, you have, to have a pioneering spirit. You have to want to change things. It has to be inside you. You know, most entrepreneurs that I know, for example, Everyone thinks that it's all about making money. It's not. Most entrepreneurs, it's about doing something, creating something, building something. You know, it, it's that pioneering spirit first. Look, if you make money, that's a bonus. But that would be, you know, a common thing I, I see in many. But you've just got that personality and that, that's, that's sort of really leading you into these things. You, you, you're always moving the the sort of hurdles higher and trying to jump over them. That's entrepreneurship. Where do you think you get your entrepreneurial streak from? Is it family? Is it where you grew up? Where does that spirit come from for you? I think it's a little bit of, it's certainly, look, it's not family. My family um, are, you know, my father's an engineer, uh, was an engineer, um, and there was no one in my family in business. So, you know, maybe it skipped a generation. I know some of my, you know, if you go back two generations, there were people in business then. But it's, it's, I think it's circumstance. I think it's just character. It's who you are. And then it's circumstance. Look, I, from an early age, you know, from when I was, you know, 13 years old, I was working in businesses. I was always work, always had, Lots of jobs, so part-time jobs, evening jobs, after school, before school, I was doing something. And, and in Essex, where I come from at that time, there was a very, and still is, a very vibrant sort of entrepreneurial culture. People, you know, it's, a, it's a, a flat place that's near to London, and there's no mountains to climb, so people <laughs> climb the mountain of business rather than, it was all of that, it was circumstance. I had some great teachers at school that gave me a lot of good basics, in particular in mathematics. I was always passionate about mathematics. And with some really, so it is a combination of all of those things, but it was exposure to business that I think most of all, you know, to business people. I mean, a very simple thing, I used to deliver newspapers in the morning and read stories about business people in the UK that were doing amazing things, I thought you know, from my small village to see what they were doing globally and nationally, uh, you know, that, that inspired me. Is anyone in particular who inspired you more when you were reading about these people, anyone who stood out? I can remember, I, look, I can remember people like someone called Tiny Lonro, who was, I can just remember the name, but there were, 
Uh-huh. I mean, he was doing things. I mean, that was in the days they were, and and um, you know, this was the days of you know M and A, all sorts of M and A. There were lots of people. It was a whole variety of people and small, you know, small businesses that became bigger businesses to show, look, it's possible. But it was really that I felt that this was, you know, something that was both doable by, you know, persistence. If you had the right experience, that there was really nothing stopping it. And, and you could do it in any sector that, the, you know, the world's a big place and there are, there was really no limitations to what someone with the right energy can do. When you decided not to go to college, but instead pursue the university of life, as you call it, was your family okay with that? No, no. My father didn't speak to me for a long while. My, you know, the headmaster at the school, everyone tried to persuade me to continue with education. But, you know, for me, you know, it was too slow. I mean, even though I had some great, great teachers at, 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 in secondary education in Britain, um, it was too slow. I, I, I wanted to go faster than the education system would allow me to go. You were hungry. I was hungry. I wanted to get on with it. I felt my, even at 16, that my life was somehow drifting away and I'd miss my chance if I didn't do it straight away. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, you know, all these world experiences you had working as a miner or working as a farmhand, I understand how that exposure to different people and different experiences taught you to become a better businessman. Do you think it also shaped you as a leader? Yes. I mean, look, first of all, it gave me no fear of the world. You know, so overall, big picture, you know, because I worked and traveled all over the world, I, I had no fear of because I knew, you know, I'd met people in those places and they were, you know, they're all, most people worldwide are similar. They may have different beliefs and different ways of working and so on, but people are people. I also met some incredible leaders of small things. I mean, one of the things you learn is to be humble. One of the things you learn when you're doing a job as a, a you know, in mining or as a farmhand, you, you know, I'm not, I wasn't running it. I was working and I could see who gave good leadership and who didn't, who could bring the team with them and who didn't. So, you know, actually starting bottom up, you get to see firsthand what good leadership can, can, can bring to an activity, a business, whatever it is. So it's that bottom up, I think, that sort of formed it. Uh, my my big mentor in life, who who was a guy from Essex, he's still my best friend today. You know, I used to work in his business, and he he was a fantastic entrepreneurial business person, but not a good leader. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, we often laugh about it. I mean, he's long retired now, but we laugh about it today about what he could have done had he been. You know, be able to convert those great ideas through add it with good leadership and what he could have done. And you need all of those things. So what makes a good leader? You have to be quite you have to be someone that is has that, as I said earlier, that healthy fear of failure with that pioneering spirit and be able to convert the balance into a business plan balance into that, you know, you, you, you create something 
You, you can navigate and take an opportunity and turn it into reality over a period of time and, and bring people with you on that journey. And, and bringing people means your own team, maybe banks, maybe investors, your customers clearly. You know, it, it's, you have to look at all of those constituents, all of those stakeholders from the beginning and be able to compute that information. But leadership is about pulling it all together and trying to simplify all of that into what's important. So how do I, what are the five or 10 things that really make a difference, that really help you navigate, as opposed to the myriad of detail that, that is business? You know, you've got to, you have to be able to, you know, bring it down to simple messages, simple KPIs, simple stepping stones to get you to where you're going. That is leadership. And inspire people. You know, you, you can't, you can never have a bad day. You know, you, you just can't. But you do, right? So when you have a bad day, what's your, what do you tell yourself? Because you have a vast team, right, around the world. So when yeah. you have an off day, and we all have an off day, how do you deal with that, knowing that you have to present your best self to your global team? You internalize it. You huh. have, you know, that it's not very healthy, by the way. And any, you know, it, so that's why, you know, entrepreneurs and people that run businesses can, you know, they suffer from stress because they're internalizing. You can't share the problems that you may see or the things, how you feel when you're a leader. You know, you, you, you know, you, you, you've got to be a leader. You have to be immune from anything that's going around on in your life or around you. You have to internalize that for another time. Whatever's going on, however you feel, you know, when you're leading teams of people, Every day has to be a good day, but you, and you have to be frank. I mean, you, you've got to deal with other people's problems rather than your own. Isn't that uh, exhausting? You get used to it. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I, I've been doing it for whatever it is, 45 years. So, it, you know, and I, you know, it's it sort of, look, it doesn't get any easier, but you get used to it. It's very important for me. Uh, having done this for so long is to try and, you know, it's very important to try and switch off. And if I don't switch off, I have to break my routine because otherwise I, I'll just continue and all the hours I'm awake, you know, going over things. So you've got to be able to, you have to be able to create some life balance to switch, turn that switch off, do something else. Is the culture changing, though, with all this awareness now and so much more of a conversation around mental health and stress? Do you think the culture is shifting and we'll reach a point where it's okay for a really successful entrepreneur like yourself to say, I'm having an off day and I don't need to internalize this anymore? The answer is, look, I think it's a very healthy focus on mental health and well-being overall. We certainly have a big focus on it in all the businesses I'm involved with because I believe, if, you know, you're only as successful as your people. I think for myself as the leader, much more difficult. You know, I don't, mm -hmm. that's the sort of luxury thing where I, I have to develop my own therapies in order to de-stress 
as I say, and I do that by just doing something. I have a lot of other interests uh, that force me to concentrate on what those things are and not, you know, otherwise I think about, you think about your business all day, every day, otherwise. How do you switch off and what's your therapy? Well, I have a collection of old cars, for example, really old cars. Like one, you know, uh, my oldest one is 1892. Um, really? So... You have to concentrate when you're driving this car. Otherwise, you, <laughs> it, will, it will start driving itself badly. And I, you know, simple things like just, you know, I, have, I like to walk dogs. I have a dog that is a truffle dog as well that finds truffles. You have to concentrate on that. I have a weekend business, you know, away from like the office business, which is farming. And I, you know, it's become, unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, quite a big business so but um they sort of brings with it some stresses but that i i like organic farming and 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 you know trying to change agriculture to make it much more sustainable so we've got quite a big enterprise in that and i do wine making in that big wine maker lots of things olive oil cheese lots of different different things in agriculture and just, yeah, just simple things, walking, you know, my kids, I've had my first grandchild spending time. I have, but, it, you know, I can remember the best relaxation I had as a young entrepreneur was my own kids because they were totally uninterested in whatever I was doing. They were and unimpressed. Unimpressed, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that was great therapy. But in the end, they grow up, they leave, leave and grow up and so on and live their own lives. And you're left with back with your business again. And so you have to create other distractions. So look, I'm traveling and I sail and do lots of different stuff. I like to fill my time. I don't like sitting around. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, you had simple beginnings and you've gone from simple beginnings to become one of the richest people in Europe, a billionaire. How does your fame, your fortune sit on your shoulders? You know, I just don't think about it. It's, it's, I don't think about it and it's sort of, it's not important to me. It, what's important to me is you know, working with other people. You know, I'm lucky enough to have two fantastic businesses that I'm involved with, the farming business and the office business. You know, it's simple things. I think, again, most entrepreneurs, successful ones or that I know, you know, our lives aren't that much different. They're a bit different. They're a bit more complicated because you tend <laughs> to have more things to worry about. But, you know, you certainly don't think about money. 
in the same, you know, you're not thinking, well, how much yeah. have I got today or what am I, you know, it's, for me at least, you know, I live quite a normal life. Look, lots of work, lots of things going on. But I think other people looking in from outside sort of my bubble look in and think it's quite a different life perhaps, but it's not really. It's the you know, same concerns, same family things, same, same everything, really. You have a bit more money, you can do a few more things with that money. You've got the luxury of being able to do philanthropy. And, you know, I like to do that and to give back and so on. You have that luxury of being able to do things like that. You're not sort of sitting in a palace somewhere counting <laughs> your money. It's a- what advice do you have for young entrepreneurs? You know, someone would look at you and say, that's my role model. That's somebody I'd like. I'd like to be like Mark Dixon. I'd like to try my hand at different businesses till one really clicks. With the benefit of all the years of experience you have, if you had to pick one really important piece of advice, what would you tell a young entrepreneur? Start early. You see, entrepreneurs tend to start hmm. too late. How early? As early as How possible. Early as early as you possibly can. Because your risk level, you know, basically the way I look at it is, look, before you're 30, you can always start again. But mm. between 30 and 40, if you get it wrong, it's much harder to start again because you can lose all your capital and, and, and worse. But if you're doing things before you're 30 or before you're 20, you, you have, you've got much more chance if it goes wrong to, to stop, start again with more experience. So it is that really is, you know, and, and by the way, you don't entrepreneurship could be just, you can do something while you're at university. You can do mm-hmm. something while you're on doing, yeah, on the side. It doesn't have to be full time, but the key thing is to gain that early experience. And the key thing is to have a go. A lot of people are very fearful about they get embarrassed. They're embarrassed that they might fail. Don't be embarrassed. Failure is not a bad thing at all. So long as you learn from it, you don't, you don't, you lose small, you don't lose too big. But go for it and do it early. That's the key thing. And, and, you know, the second thing, get, get some great mentors, you know, listen to, get some people that really know what they're doing around you. You can get loads of free advice. I did when I was young. I was like a sponge with anyone I could find trying to get, so how would you do this and what would you do in this? There's people that would be very happy to do that. I coach about a dozen young entrepreneurs, some of them very young, in today. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a few, you know, half an hour here and there. Um, not to tell them what to do, but just to advise them, you know, of how to overcome obstacles, give them, get them on the right road. What's the best piece of advice you got when you were starting out? I, do you know what? I don't think I can answer that because I've got so much advice. What's the worst piece of advice you ever got? The worst, uh, the worst advice is, uh, look, I, I put it, can I use a category of bad yes. advice? And, and, and it's sort of people thinking, People advising you without thinking because they think it's the right thing to do. It's not something they've done or they're, right. you know, they just say, 
well, I think you're supposed to do it like that. And they haven't questioned it. So one of the biggest problems is people, I'm always very cautious of people just coming out with things and they haven't interrogated whether or not that's the right thing or not the right thing. So you've got to be very questioning over, even if you're getting advice, don't just take it, question it. Someone's opinion isn't always the right thing. So, And it's important to get two or three different opinions, different pieces of advice, and then try and triangulate to, so, well, okay, now what do I think? So I suppose the most important thing is don't forget what you think. Your gut, your common sense is telling you the right thing. All you're doing is testing it. A lot of times I've come off the right route by hearing advice, maybe not challenging it, doing it. And that can cost you time, money, and you go in the wrong direction. How do you stay centered? How do you take time out for yourself to stay true to your instinct, to continue to listen to your inner voice? I have a lot of friends from my youth. Um, I have family. Look, I go back to Essex. Uh, These are people I've known my whole life. So, you know, you go back to your roots. And I always find to get centred, I sometimes drive past my old school and I, it centres me because I can remember, I try and get myself back to the 15-year-old me. You know, what was I thinking and what were your aspirations? That, for me, is quite important. And you've got to think of, go back to your origins and, and you know, you know, that helps. I also read a lot. So, you know, I, I like biographies and history, but lots of history. And again, that tends to, when you see other people's lives and how other people did things in past ages, it helps center you. It helps sort of remind you that really you're a very small spoke in a very, very big wheel. So, you know, don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> Would you write your own book? Would you, do you have any interest in writing your own biography, an autobiography? I'm not sure I have enough content, but it, I would, maybe one day when I get some time and if, you know, I'd have to believe that it would be something that people would actually want to read. I want to make it an exciting read. It's got to be more like a thriller than a business story. I think it's quite exciting, your backstory. There's a, there's a lot to read in there. Um, I just want to go back very quickly to what we talked about at the beginning. Has the way we work changed forever as a result of the pandemic, as a result of the world's largest work-from-home experiment that we've been seeing for more than a year now? It's changed permanently. I mean, it's, it's sometimes you can't see what's going on until the tide goes out. Right. And the tide's not going to go out until, you know, the COVID crisis, the pandemic crisis has passed. But pretty much every company is contemplating a change in how they support their workforce. You know, technology changes everything and technology will change work fundamentally. And, and really, it's not people get confused in this to say, well, is this the difference between working at home and working in an office? No. It's about all about commuting and about the mm. craziness of people commuting. You know, people spend two hours a day or more commuting at great cost to 
their pocket and to their family life when they could work close to home or at home some of the time. And so, you know, it was happening pre-COVID. And as you say, this great work from home experiment worked. There was no productivity loss for most companies. In fact, productivity went up. You know, yeah. the world did not stop. It still works. Everything, you know, in spite of the pandemic, a lot of companies did really well. And so what it does is it, it sort of changes things. The change will happen quite rapidly, but it won't happen from one day to the next because companies have to come out of the space they already have. They've got to, they have leases. Those yeah. leases have to end. But it will be good for people, less commuting, good for companies, much less cost. And the environment, you know, there'll be a 70% reduction in carbon footprints because people will be working at home or more locally and offices, central offices become smaller. Your business, now called International Workplace Group, IWG, you offer shared office spaces. There are bound to be other players who enter this space and start offering similar services. You know, we've seen WeWork uh, burst onto the scene a few years ago. Is imitation the best form of flattery? Well, yeah, look, this is it's a great business to be in. So you're going to get competition. So it is the best form of flattery. Look, I wish I don't I wish there was less flattering going on, but you know, it's <laughs> look, it's this will be a big sector. This becomes a big part of the property industry in the future. So, yes, you're going to get lots coming into it. So, you know, that helps enlarge the market. With every new operator coming into the segment, it helps. We're the market leader. It helps us indirectly. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is just, that's just the nature of being in a successful sector. Um, you know, we have to remain very agile, very entrepreneurial to keep up with, you know, the ne- the latest competitor. We have to be, we're always going to be bigger. Can we be as good or better? That's what we have to do. It'll keep you on your toes. Mark, this podcast is called Out of Office. And I want to end by asking you, what's your absolute favorite thing to do when you're out of the office? Sailing. That's my favorite thing away from everything and you have to concentrate if you're sailing because you know i my boat is a classic very old boat from 1920 so i, I like old things as you've noticed as well yes. and you know it so that boat you have to concentrate because it's not like a modern boat there's no forgiving in it, it you concentrate you've got fresh air You've got the ocean against you, you know, and they, the ocean is unforgiving. So that's what I like. That, that, that's, that's my most relaxing pastime. Just very quickly, could you describe the feeling? You're out there in your boat, the ocean in front of you. How does that make you feel? Free. You know, it comes back, you know, if you're running a business, it's an enormous burden. It's a fantastic thing to be able to do, but you you are carrying the weight of many people on your shoulders and, and your customers and so on. So for me, it's a sense of freedom. I, I feel I can be myself. I've got no interruptions. I just have the ocean, me, the boats, 
and that's it. And I'm I'm free for a small point in time. I always come back a new person. I, I come back clear head, relaxed. I wish you many more hours on the ocean in your boat, and thank you so much for talking to me today. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. That was my chat with Mark Dixon, and I hope you enjoyed it. I loved understanding what makes this entrepreneur tick. I was impressed with the story of a teenage Mark starting his sandwich business, and his thoughts about having a healthy sense of failure has given me something to think about. Well, that's it for this week. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Alika Kapoor. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you stay well, and as always, thank you for listening. in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.